Welcome back to Patently Obvious, where we interview influential IP lawyers about what went into preparing for landmark cases. I'm Michael Ganewish, and I'm with Alex Delaney. Today, we're talking about Laramie, which is used to introduce students around the country to the concept of literal infringement of patents. Alex, what can you tell me about this case? This is a 1993 case out of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, and the case deals with a super soaker toy water gun. Amram patented a water gun with a water chamber inside the body of the gun. Another company, Laramie, subsequently produced a super soaker. The super Soaker 50. You can soak someone up to 50 feet away. The Super Soaker 50 from Laramie. The Super Soaker differed from Amron's gun and that the water chamber was a detachable plastic bubble on the top of the gun. In patent law, literal infringement is found when a product infringes on every element of one of the patent's claims. In this case, the court ruled that the super soaker did not infringe on Amron's gun because Amron claimed a chamber inside the gun, and the super soaker had a detachable chamber on the top of the gun. Alex, that seems like a small difference, but I spoke to the attorney who argued this case, and he explained that in the world of water guns, a detachable chamber is a big deal. His name is Mr. Gary Rosen of Logar PC in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. What can you tell me about Mr. Rosen? Mr. Gary Rosen has been a litigator for more than 30 years with experience in patent, copyright, trademark, and other intellectual property and commercial disputes. He lectured at Wharton and gave an IP course at Drexel University for many years. Mr. Rosen has written two books about IP law, and his second book, Adventures of a Jazz Age Lawyer, was just published. It looks at the early history of copyright law in the U.S. and talks about Nathan Burkan, an early and influential copyright lawyer. Well, let's go ahead and hear your full interview with Mr. Rosen, where you talk about Laramie, the doctrine of literal infringement, and great advice for any law student interested in IP. First, I'd like to thank Mr. Gary Rosen for joining us today on Patently Obvious. Mr. Rosen, I'd like to know what your first patent litigation case was. That would have been in 1986. I had been in private practice with a small litigation boutique for about a, maybe six weeks. And just to give you a little context, like 98% of law graduates at that time, I had had no uh, intellectual property courses in law school. Just wasn't that much, uh, there weren't that many professors teaching it. And, and it just wasn't uh, on the radar screen of most students at the time. But one thing that had occurred was the Federal Circuit had been formed a few years earlier. And the Federal Circuit started to breathe new life into patent law, and in particular, revived patent jury trials. So what happened was a local patent boutique, which for years had been doing all of its own litigation, came to my firm with a case because they believed, as it eventually did, it would be a jury trial and uh, they didn't feel ready to do jury trials. So that's how we got involved. The case involved a uh, arcade uh, electronic dartboard machine. Uh, you may have seen them in bars or other places of amusement. You toss a plastic tit dart at a board that has little perforations in it, and it electronically keeps your score. In that case was Merit Industries versus Iraq. 
which did go on to uh, a reported Federal Circuit opinion, which uh, used to be cited a lot. I don't know if I've seen it much lately. We were defending. We lost at trial. But on appeal, it was reversed entirely outright because on the grounds of standing. The patentee, the plaintiff, didn't have legal title to the patent at the time the suit was instituted. And for many years, the arachnid case was cited for that proposition. I don't know if it's uh, as pertinent today as it was back then. I imagine because people are more careful about or ascertaining that they have title before they sue. Yeah, and, and you have to understand, you know, this is the early 1990s. The Federal Circuit was still new. It was still kind of rewriting patent law. And uh, there were a lot of doctrines like that one, which uh, patent lawyers believed was the law, but there wasn't actually a lot of law on the uh, subject, which is why the district judge got it wrong, and the Federal Circuit had to speak to that. And there was a lot of that going on at that era. It's really interesting, to ha- I guess, to have been part of that, uh, for- those formative years. But from your writing, it seems that your true love is music and copyright law. What sparked your interest in that subject? Well, I have an interest in the American popular culture of the early 20th century, not just the music, but the movies, the radio broadcasting, all of that. And that was something I got from my father, who grew up in the 20s and the 30s. And it was something, he was a somewhat older father for my generation. And that was something we bonded on. And uh, it's been an interest of mine is how did the United States go? from being an importer of European popular culture to suddenly being the world's greatest exporter of music, movies, etc. And that it happened in that era. And I think a big part of that was copyright law as it developed in the United States, various other legal uh, doctrines, which sparked, helped spark that creativity, helped make it commercial. And basically, you know, suddenly the United States just emerged as, as the world's leading exporter of energy and entertainment and that type of thing. I mean, that's an interesting theory because it's almost like arguing that the commercialization of art is what ended up fueling it. Because it, people don't usually tie the arts with, you know, corporations and commercialization. So it's, a, it's an interesting theory. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm probably a little old fashioned in that regard. I'm a strong copyright proponent um, because of that history where I saw copyright law, just to take popular music as an example, it went from being a a very mom-and-pop operation selling sheet music to home musicians to becoming this massive industry with the music being heard on records and movies, on radio broadcasts and so forth worldwide. And a big piece of that that made that possible was strong copyright uh, protection. Talking about music, if you had to choose a walkout song before you go before a jury or a judge, what would it be? Well, anything you're doing in the courtroom, it's got to be designed to send a message to the jury or the judge. Uh, You can't pick a song because it's about you or says something about you. It's got to be something that works with the case you're trying to present. So it would depend on the case. But here's one thought I have along those lines. If I were representing a plaintiff, I might use, we're not going to take it by Twisted Sister. 
And I picked that because I once had occasion in a copyright case uh, to play that song. It was one of the songs at issue in the case for a jury in rural Virginia. And during voir dire, these jurors all told me they didn't like rock music. They listened to religious music and so forth. But we took a chance and we played uh, the Twisted Sister song. And there's no question, they were tapping their feet and bopping their heads and getting into it. And so you just never know. And uh, so I'd, I'd probably give that song a try again, if it were appropriate for the case. Let's talk about the specifics of the Laramie case. How did you come to represent Laramie in the first place? Uh, that was a directly connected with that earlier case involving the dartboards. Shortly after we got the Federal Circuit opinion, which decided the case in our favor, uh, that same patent boutique, which had been doing the patent prosecution work for Laramie, uh, came to us and asked us to enforce the patents that he had obtained on the super soaker water guns. So the first case we handled for Laramie was as a plaintiff enforcing a Laramie patent. We actually got a preliminary injunction in that case, which nowadays is just about impossible, uh, but those were simpler times. And after that, we were asked to take over the Amron case, which had already been pending for perhaps a year or so. And Laramie at that time was a little Philadelphia-based rack toy importer. And by rack toys, I'm referring to the stuff you see at the drugstore or at the grocery store, at the airport gift shop. It's usually cheap knockoffs of more popular toys. There's no TV advertising. It depends on impulse purchases, kids seeing it at the drugstore and having a tantrum. Uh, so they were in the business of importing that kind of stuff. They had had a big success, and part of that was water gun. That was part of the rack toy racket, as, as it were. They had had a, a big success a few years earlier with battery-operated water guns, and that ran its course. And in the early 1990s, they introduced the air-pressured toy water gun. And this was a phenomenon. For a few years in the early 1990s, it was the number one toy. Uh, and in fact, it was the number one toy through the Christmas selling season, which had never occurred before with a summer toy. They were selling the original Super Soaker model for $10, which was unheard of for a water gun. They were advertising it on TV, also unheard of for that kind of product. But it was a big fad. It was, uh, you know, you editorial cartoons in newspapers. You'd frequently see politicians uh, having super soaker water gun fights and so forth. It's a little hard to, to picture that now, but it was one of those toy items, you know, stores could not keep it in stock. And that went on from about 1990 to 92 or 93, which is when this case took place. Going to more strategic questions. What are some of the first steps you take after you take on a client like Laramie? How do you begin to tackle these legal questions? Well, the first thing is not the legal questions. When I take on a commercial client, which most of my clients fit that category over the years, the first thing I want to do is understand their business thoroughly. That's going to be key to getting a successful result in any case. And that precedes tackling the legal questions. And I found, you know, doing jury trials and stuff, some have gone on for weeks, stressful, 
lots of tense moments with clients, the nice moments, the nicest moments with clients and all of that have been when I've given an opening or done an examination, which shows I truly understand their business and what they're trying to accomplish. Nothing cements the bond with a client more than that. So that's the first thing. The legal questions, that's what law school well prepares you for. Issue spotter questions on a law school exam, good training for how you tackle the legal issues in a case. If you were to take cross sections of my brain at this point in life, you would see a bunch of checklists for different kinds of cases of issues I want to run through and gather the facts to see whether uh, a particular issue is litigable in, in the given case. And uh, that comes, you know, after getting that big picture view and it precedes legal research. Um, one thing I have found is you never see the same thing twice. Uh, there are very few where I can give an off-the-cuff answer or feel confident that uh, based on what I've done in the past, I know how this one's coming out. So that's the sequence. And I, I was going to add to that, and what they don't teach you in law school, I guess, is the methods and strategies of figuring out the client's business. No, that's the stuff you, you start to learn on the job, and hopefully you have um, some good mentors who show you how it's done. And I, I was fortunate in that respect. To the specifics of the case, do you think Amram would have won if they would have argued doctrine of equivalence? There isn't a big functional difference between Virin and above. Uh, au contraire. And in fact, although the version of the case that, that you see in case books, and it was only a few years ago that I learned that this case was being used to teach literal infringement and I get in multiple patent law case books. But in the edited version you see there, it deals with claim one of the Esposito patent, which was the patent in suit. And for whatever reason, and you have to excuse me after 30 years, I don't remember if I ever knew why they didn't argue doctrine of equivalence on claim one. But there was another claim, similar claim involved in the case, claim 10. And uh, the court also ruled there was no literal infringement there, in part for that same distinction. And there they did argue doctrine of equivalence, and they lost on that too. And you need to uh, try to visualize the Super Soaker water gun as it existed then. It was a cool-looking toy. It looked like a science fiction ray gun with this tank on top. And putting the tank on top, which held the water, rather than within the body of the gun, gave it a distinctive look. It made it less expensive to manufacture because only the tank needed to be watertight, pressure tight. The body of the gun itself could be much more cheaply manufactured. The play value of the toy was entirely different. Remember, that's the object of this invention, was amusement, have fun. The uh, external tank was removable, and uh, kids could Laramie, in fact, would sell utility belts, like Batman utility belts that you could hook multiple tanks to. So if you were going to a Super Soaker water gun fight, and note I always say Super Soaker water gun because I also did their trademark work. 
and uh, protecting Super Soaker from becoming generic was another piece of the whole pie. But anyway, if you're going to a Super Soaker water gun fight, you wanted to have uh, that extra ammunition uh, rather than having to go back inside to the sink and refill your water gun under the sink. So there actually were, you know, you apply the uh, classic function means result test to doctrine of equivalence. We had a very strong argument on doctrine of equivalence. And I think it's a shame that that part of the case is, is not included in the case book. Is there, I guess, industry knowledge about different courts and the way that they read patent claims? Are some courts stricter in the reading of patent claims than others? Here's what I tell my students on this subject of claim construction. I think the Federal Circuit has created a fairly clear hierarchy of evidence in that you use, the language of the claim, the specification, the prosecution history, extrinsic evidence. They have a body of uh, principles of claim construction, like uh, every term should be given meaning if possible claim differentiation, things like that, which are difficult to apply because they often will point in different directions. And in that situation, you have to weigh them and decide in a given case which one points you in the direction of your ultimate goal of what a person of ordinary skill in the art would mean, uh, would understand by the claim term. That gives courts a lot of wiggle room. And I don't know if at the district court level, the trial court level, there are judges who have a reputation for interpreting them broadly or narrowly, there are judges, I think, have a reputation for being more pro-patent and less pro-patent. But that pro-patent doesn't mean interpret the claims more broadly, because if infringement is the issue, yes. If you want to rule for the patentee, you construe the claim broadly. But if validity is the issue. You interpret that claim narrowly, typically. So I think the answer to your question is, I think there are judges who are, those who have a large body of patent cases where you can see patterns. There's some are more pro-patent than others, um, but how they will interpret the claim can vary depending on whether infringement or validity is the key issue before them. This may sound like a slightly ignorant question, but I've always been fascinated and interested in the drawings that accompany patents. Are there expert or professional patent illustrators in the market that firms would hire in the event that they would need a drawing? Yes, that is a very uh, definite, defined skill. And I am a registered patent attorney, but I do not do patent applications. Very few days go by that I don't get an unsolicited email from a patent illustration service offering me their services. Occasionally, I have used them in litigation because I needed uh, an illustration, uh, particularly for litigation purposes, in that patent style. But there is a very big uh, industry of patent illustrators, uh, and that's where that comes from. And they're very good, and they're amazingly fast. Very interesting. And what do you think about, on a policy level, the doctrine as a whole? Do you think that the strict limitations on literal infringement do well to incentivize innovation, or do you think that they're too tedious? Well, that can be both. <laughs> I think of literal infringement and the uh, necessity of 
you know, these rules that every every element of the claim has to be there, literally, serves the uh, innovation encouragement function indirectly. Directly, it encourages the um, public notice function of patent law. Remember, that's part of it, too, is we want inventions to be disclosed, and we want them to be disclosed fully so that the public, on the day they expire, can practice those patents. And while the patent is in force, so the public can design around those patents and know how far they can go. And indirectly, that encourages innovation because the designing around process, the pushing the envelope process, that's innovation too. It may not benefit that patentee in question, but uh, theoretically, society as a whole benefits from those efforts. So I think the literal infringement doctrine serves that function indirectly. That's a very interesting take. I appreciate that because you usually think of incentivizing innovation as protecting the patentee or the inventor, but I like that, that take as well. You're about to publish a book documenting, as we talked about earlier, the beginning of IP protection for musicians in the 20s and 30s. You particularly focus on a lawyer, Nathan Birkin. Uh, we're going to talk about him in the introduction. But what is your favorite Nathan Birkin story? Okay. First of all, the book is out, Adventures of a Jazz Age Lawyer, uh, available Amazon, Kindle, uh, and, and all online uh, book retailers. So much for the plug. Nathan Birkin's law practice was fascinating, particularly for someone of my generation, someone of your generation, looking back to somebody who, who practiced basically from 1900 to 1936. That was the period of his career. It was so broad and so general that no, nobody can touch that kind of practice today. My favorite stories about him center around ethical questions. Legal ethics were very different back then. He started practicing before the first ABA canon of ethics in 1909, and uh, long before the uh, model rules that we, we noted study today. Things were very different. Conflicts of interest in particular. That was basically just a question of the lawyer's conscience, what the lawyer felt comfortable doing. And there was a joke that Nathan Burkan had so many clients, he'd go into court and find out he was on both sides. And there was much truth in this jest. So one of my favorite stories was one, it's not a lawsuit, it was a transaction, but he was representing both the famous movie producer Samuel Goldwyn and the famous movie director Henry King. And Goldwyn was hiring King to do a movie. This is in the early 20s. So the three of them sat down in a hotel lobby. Burkan drafted the terms of an agreement on behalf of both of them, handed it to Henry King and said, Henry, I promise you Samuel Goldwyn will abide by every word in this contract to the letter. But anything that's not in this contract, you can't trust him as far as you can throw him. <laughs> this was in the hotel lobby in, in Hollywood. Samuel Goldwyn created quite a scene. You're my lawyer, Nathan. How can you say such a thing? But I'm Henry's lawyer, too. And you know what? Everybody loved the guy. And everybody trusted the guy. And the deal was made. The movie was made. And uh, he continued to represent both of them. <laughs> that is wow, that's a pretty interesting story. 
yeah, like I say, ethics were different then. There were cases where he was trying jury cases where he'd take the witness stand and testify. And uh, it just head-scratching to anybody who was trained, uh, you know, in the late uh, 20th century, or early 21st century. It's so interesting how, I guess, the machine begins to work at a certain point, and then, you know, that many years later, it looks completely different from how it started out. And I think those, those questions are fascinating, just seeing the development of our practice. And what do you see as the f- next frontier for copyright protection when today Spotify pays pennies to artists and YouTube and TikTok creators are all the rage? Historically, one thing I saw in the early days of the music industry and in the middle days of the music industry and continuing into quite recently was that when new technologies, new media came along, this was true of recordings and piano rolls and radio broadcasting and movies, and was true of YouTube and so forth, they come along and they plead, we can't establish ourselves if we have to pay for music. And music should be grateful for us because we're promoting sales of music in other media and so forth. And historically, the music industry tended to be somewhat supine in responding to that. Burkan, as I write in my book, was was an exception to that. But uh, typically these industries have been allowed to establish themselves and take root, paying very little, if anything, for music. Um, Getting special dispensation either from the industry directly or from Congress or what have you. I think what you're about to see and I base this on my knowledge of the present leaders of the trade associations and the performing rights organization in the music field and in, and in, in other entertainment fields, people are going to be made to pay. TikTok is not going to take root and then be able to plead, oh, you know, our whole business model is based on paying nothing or paying pennies. The industries are going to be quite aggressive. Peloton recently is an example. They were not paying for the music that they streamed to people's Peloton exercise machines. Uh, the music industry came down on them like a ton of bricks. That's what I see. I, the head of the Music Publishers Association of America, David Israelite, who is one of the young titans of this, uh, says what we're entering now is the age of accountability. So that's what I see. I see um, very, very, very fast, emphatic Uh, copyright enforcement, and I suspect a Congress, this this is guesswork, a Congress that's going to be less inclined to create special rules and exceptions and so forth for these new industries that come pleading to them. I feel like we could spend an entire interview just talking about that subject. I mean, there was the whole Taylor Swift thing and uh, Apple Music, I believe, a while back. So that definitely bears out your prediction about the future. People are tired, I guess, of corporations taking advantage of the little guys. What is the one piece of advice you would give to law students that are interested in IP litigation? Or what is one skill set you suggest they focus on during their legal education? I'm going to give a piece of advice that I give my law students. And although it's in a course, it's in a IP course, it's the same advice I give to any law student. If you have never studied accounting or finance, never learned how to uh, basic accounting principles or how to read a financial statement, find a way 
to learn. If you're at a university where there's some kind of course you can take, do it, audit it, take it in your own time. Even if it's a, a three-day continuing legal education accounting for lawyers course at a hotel somewhere, get yourself into that. You need to know some of that. And I don't care if it's IP litigation or anything else uh, that lawyers do with a JD degree. It's something that's not routinely taught in law schools. It's not a piece of advice that I think most law students receive. So it is my job. Uh, I've taken it upon myself to be the proponent uh, for all law students getting some background in basic accounting and finance. I actually had one professor tell me the same, but he... Good. Yeah, he talked about it in terms of understanding the corporate world, finding out what securities mean and all that, all that kind of thing. But that, That's a part of it. That's a part of it. And you can take corporate law and you can take securities law, and that's all great. But basic accounting and finance, which is not part of the law school curriculum, certainly most places, find a way to learn a little of that. Thank you. And, and Finally, what is the number one thing that you wish you would have known before you started off on your IP litigation career? I can't say that I didn't know this because the judge I clerked for told me this. He told me that the key to advocacy is first show the judge or jury why they want to decide for you, then show them how. Okay, And he told me that repeatedly. So I knew it but I didn't fully appreciate how important that was or what it meant. That's what advocacy is all about. Make the decision maker, the fact finder, whomever, the court, the judge, the jury, want to rule in your favor. Then, you know, unless you're totally out in left field, you should be able to find a path for them to get there, applying the law, not applying sympathy or so forth. Um, but if you reverse the order of those things, you reduce your odds. Thank you, Mr. Rosen, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by me, Michael Gnuish, and Jordan from Fiverr. Spray Painted Gold is by Little Glass Men, and Acoustic Indie Folk is by Scott Holmes, all via the Free Music Archive. For questions or comments, reach out to us at patentlyobviouspodcast at gmail.com. This is Patently Obvious.